You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. This is the message from this week's service. If you want to view the full service, including worship, please head to our website at wordoflifeag.org. While there, you can also see what's coming up at the church or even check out some next steps. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Well, good morning, Word of Life. It's great to be able to be a part of service with you. Uh, So this time of year, there's all kinds of things that are going on both here in church and I'm sure everywhere else where you find yourself during the week. Um, But if you are here and you are a young adult, um, we have our 20s, 30s, that's our young adult ministry. They're going to be hanging out after service uh, around 12 o'clock. They're going to be heading to Elizabeth Street. Did I hear some whoops from the back? That was the most subtle I've ever heard an Italian whoop. Come on, Michael. (laughs) Anyway, so uh, at 12 o'clock over our Elizabeth Street building, uh, the young adults can be hanging out, having lunch. I believe there's pizza and there's rumors of Christmas cookies. So if you're a young adult, oh, wow, now we're talking. Now we're in gear. So uh, please come hang out. Don't drift into church and then drift out. Get to know some people. Hopefully you make some, uh, some good friendships over there. So head over to Elizabeth Street if you're part of our young adults ministry. Uh, it'd be great for you to get a chance to hang out. And um, on Friday, we've been talking about this a ton. If you've been around the church for the last month or so, you will have heard us talk again and again about Carols and Coco. It's a big outreach we do for the community. And it's one of the ways that we want to prove and show the community that there is a church in Baldwinsville that cares about them, that we care about their well-being. We care about their spiritual life. And uh, we had this great event on Friday night. We got a couple of pictures to show you of all the things that went down. So here we are. Uh, you may notice that little chap in red there. That's my son Moses helping out. And uh, yeah, so that was really cool. And then we got some more pictures to sort of show you through here. There we go. Uh, their hog Rito is the thing of daydreams. That's a whole other story. So we had some food trucks outside, and then there's a little guy going around the train tracks in the gym. And then we got one more picture to show you some cool stuff that happened. And then there we are outside uh, with the uh, hot cocoa outside. So I have no idea how many people were here, but this place was packed, and it was a great bunch of fun. And for all the volunteers that made that possible, please, massive, massive thank you to each and every one of you. It really was. It wouldn't have been possible without you. And I'm going to continue praying and believe in the good things that are going to come from us doing this outreach here at the church. Uh, And this, of course, means that we are now well and truly in the Christmas mode. Uh, I love Christmas. I don't think I'm alone in this. It's a great time of year. And there's so much about modern Christmas celebrations that don't have anything directly or indirectly to do with the birth of Jesus. For instance, um, candy canes, lighting up a Christmas tree, even a big family dinner, definitely Elf on the Shelf. That guy is not heaven sent. But a grumpy man being visited by three ghosts, a fragile lamp made out of mannequin legs. None of these things are evil or wrong. They're a part of celebrating, but in the middle of all those extra additional things, we still keep central that this is a holiday that reminds us that God stepped into human history that he became humanity to save humanity because we couldn't save ourselves. The baby that was laid in a manger, it isn't a cute story, but it's the story of how God changed the world. It's not just a kid's story or a nice picture on a Christmas card. This is a picture of God fulfilling his promises. So in the midst of all the extra things at Christmas, there is still the most important message of all, that Jesus came 
And one of the ways that we can see that the message of the nativity is, is still central, even in our culture that seems to be secularized, that seems to be consumed with a whole bunch of additional stuff, we still, even though all the additional stuff is going on around Christmas time, you will still hear a bunch of buzzwords at Christmas that point to the nativity on things like wrapping paper or decorations and even TV commercials and other Christmas items. You'll find some of the same words over and over again. You'll often see the word joy or peace or hope. And the word hope is what we're going to talk about today, and that word is everywhere at Christmas time. And we'll see the word hope oftentimes in a context that isn't strictly speaking about anything faith-based, but it shares a common understanding that Christmas is somehow synonymous with hope. And why is hope synonymous with Christmas? Why is the word hope plastered everywhere this time of year? It's surely not so that we can have hope in Santa or presents or the office Christmas party or even Bob Dylan's 2009 Christmas album. But surely the hope that we see all over Christmas is the hope in the birth of a Savior that we desperately need. And the cry for help is still strong in the human heart. We can get so lost in despair that today's troubles will be how it will always be. We can find ourselves in a bleak place, and we probably all understand that to get out of that heavy, lonely place is to have a strong presence of hope. Hope can be defined and described in many ways, but at the core and essence of hope is the confidence that things will get better. In spite of how it is today, despite all the very real struggles that you or I might be living through, no matter how difficult today may be, hope is the belief that there is another day. This morning, I want to consider together the importance of having hope in the right place. To carry us forward, we, we need to have hope. I want to have hope in my life, and I want that for everyone else. But where is this hope coming from? What is the basis of our hope? Where are we placing our hope? Now, it's obvious that I'm going to say that I believe that we should have a true hope in God and hope in His promises. I'm sure every single one of you sees that coming. As a preacher, I recognize that that's the kind of thing I'm supposed to say. But my friends, I truly believe it. And if God is the right place to have our hope, then we should be ready to recognize and acknowledge and think about the wrong places we can place our hope. We can place hope in things like a career or even retirement accounts, or college scholarships, or a promotion, or finding the right partner. As we get closer to the election, please remember that no politician or political party is worthy of your undying loyalty and definitely not worthy of your hope. But I truly believe that God and God alone is the true basis for hope. Other things may be good or even noble, but it's God that is working it all together. I want you to have a good career. I want your kids to do well in school and sports. I want your retirement accounts to do well so you can enjoy retirement. I want you to find a godly spouse and to have a wonderful family. But these things I would describe as instruments. These things are instruments, and God is the composer, the conductor, and the musician. You could buy a, a grand piano, and I, I looked it up this week, and you can pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for the right kind of grand piano. Now, if I wrote a piece of music and put on a public performance of me playing this original piece on a grand piano worth a small fortune, there is not a single person in the world who would want to hear it. My own children would pretend they didn't know me. Megan would hand out earplugs as an act of compassion. It wouldn't matter that I was playing a piano worth more than most houses. I don't know how to play the piano. I don't know how to write music. But if you gave Paul McCartney 
or Billy Joel or Luke Cutler a $30 Casio keyboard, people would line up around the block. They would crash Ticketmaster to see a performance on a $30 Casio because the composer and the conductor and the musician is more important than the instrument. Now, we could stretch this analogy. We could even hang it on different things. We could talk about tools and craftsmen. We could talk about cars and driver. But the important thing to hit home is that all these things that we can place our hope in and all these places we can have a high level of hope, let's see them as instruments that God is working in, that God is moving in, but He is the composer, the conductor, and the musician. My friends, be honest. Take a moment, reflect, and ask yourself, are you searching for hope from the instrument or the conductor? Many times these instruments, they're, they're not evil, but they are best suited when they're in the hands of the master rather than us trying to play them ourselves. A psalm that caught my attention this week as I was contemplating this whole idea of hope from Psalm 33, we put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. Let your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in you alone. And also this verse from Romans 15, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can also find hope based in deceptive and false promises. An honest look around us shows a world who's believing false promises of hope, and many people are searching for hope outside of the will of God. But what I wanted to put to you this morning is this Christmas, find hope in the right place. This Christmas, find hope in the right place. And how does the word hope go from being words on a page or a theoretical concept to our day-to-day experience? We can read passages like the ones I read from the Bible, and there are, of course, many others. But how can we find this hope, not in an abstract, hypothetical way, but in a genuinely life-changing way? How can we find hope? And there's some helpful ways to think about hope that I wrote down that I hope and pray are helpful for you. The first thing is that hope is interwoven with trust. Hope is interwoven with trust. There's a verse from Jeremiah. It's very well known. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, this is a, a popular verse. It's the kind of verse that you put on a coffee cup or on a fridge magnet or you write in a card to give someone when they graduate. But if you read the rest of the book of Jeremiah, you'll see that this verse that encourages hope, it's written to people in the middle of complete devastation. This book was written at a time when God's people had been defeated in war, and they'd been taken by force 900 miles away from home, and they were left wondering if God had completely forgotten about them. And with that backdrop, God reminds them, and consequently us, that He is working together good plans, that He is unraveling a future that we will want to be a part of. This message of hope was not given to people enjoying life these are not people celebrating all the good things that they're readily experiencing, but this was a much-needed reminder that God should be trusted with our future. And trust is built in two ways, character and capability. The two ways that we can establish trust both with each other and I would even say with God Himself is in finding out about someone's character and then someone's capability, trusting someone's character, trusting their capability. 
And that means there's two considerations about trusting God. Firstly, God's motives. And secondly, God's ability. Do we trust God's motives? Do we trust that God loves us? That he is good? That even though we're hurting, even though it's terrible, even though we may question, does God care about me? Do we trust his motives? And also, do we trust his ability? Is he able to step into whatever mess I am in? Can he help me during the worst moments of my life? Have I pushed him away too much? Have my mess-ups sealed my fate? Do I trust God's motives and his ability? Now, the Bible is full of promises. People have tried to count how many promises we can find in the Bible, and depending on what qualifies as a promise, the number people come up with ranges from 3,000 to 8,000. So let's be conservative and say 3,000. 3,000 promises. If we read the Bible and we spread it over a year, we would read, on average, eight promises a day. The Bible is filled with promises. The question is not, does God make promises? But the question that will build our trust in Him is to ask, does He keep His promises? And the Christmas story is a great display of God keeping His promises. The promise of a Savior, the promise of God initiating the great rescue we need. And the crucifixion, it amazingly showcases God's faithfulness to His promises. The crucifixion showcases and is a great display and a great demonstration of God's motive. Motivated by love, Jesus went to the cross. Motivated by a love for you, a love for me. Motivated by wanting to fix and heal the broken relationship between humanity and God, Jesus went to the cross. And He did what only God could do and take the price, paying the price for humanity. God became humanity so that he could pay the price that you and I could never, ever pay. It was a, a few years ago now, I did a five-part series here at the church looking at Isaiah 53, and it's one of the sermon series that I enjoyed studying for the most. I, I learned so much, and I was deeply inspired by what I learned. But Isaiah 53 is the Old Testament passage that is referenced in the New Testament more than any other portion of the Old Testament. And here's a few verses from that well-known passage in Isaiah 53. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's good paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Now this passage, it describes in fascinating detail the crucifixion of Jesus. It's of paramount importance that you and I keep in mind that this was written around 700 years before Jesus was born. For us in 2023, approximately, the real life William Wallace was being Braveheart around 700 years ago. Just try and imagine one of the characters from Braveheart accurately describing something that happened this week and not only predict what would happen, but also give very specific details. Isaiah doesn't paint with broad strokes here. He's specifically detailing Jesus' crucifixion 700 years before it happened. 
I'll walk through a couple more of those verses just so we can see how this was all fulfilled. From Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and treated harshly. And after the religious leaders had judged Jesus and found him guilty, it says this in Matthew 26, then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with the fists. And some slapped him during prophesies to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? Isaiah also told us that he never said a word. And as the religious leaders made all kinds of accusations, we also read this in Matthew 26. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Isaiah goes on. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. And as the religious leaders are trying to convince the Romans to crucify Jesus, we read this. When the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they're bringing against you, Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Isaiah goes on. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. Unjustly? That describes Jesus' trial perfectly. Unjust. It was an absolute charade. There are false witnesses. You've got Judas who betrayed Jesus trying to reverse his testimony and people ignoring that he's trying to reverse his testimony. The religious leaders were whipping the crowds into a frenzy. You see Pilate mishandling the trial. Pilate goes on to release a notorious criminal instead of Jesus. Pilate symbolically washed his hands of the whole thing. And knowing full well Jesus was innocent, Pilate sent him off anyway. Unjustly condemned, it describes perfectly what happened to Jesus. Isaiah goes on, but he was buried like a criminal. And from the book of Philippians, Paul writes, when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And then Isaiah also says this, he was put in a rich man's grave. And immediately after Jesus had died on the cross, we read this in Matthew 27. As evening approached, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate issued an order to release it to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of rock. Then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. Now, why go through all this? Why take the time to do this? The reason it's worth taking the time to go through these passages in Isaiah 53 and then see in the New Testament how they're fulfilled is it's evidence that God keeps his promises. It's proof that he's able to keep his promises, that his promises are for good, not for harm, that he and he alone is able to keep and fulfill these promises, that his motive is driven completely by love for you and for me. Is God willing to keep his promises? Is God able to keep his promises? From Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. The second consideration I'd share with you about hope is that hope shapes our decisions. Hope shapes our decisions. When we have hope, we make major life decisions informed by whatever we are hoping for. Where you've placed your hope will make a difference when you make life's biggest decisions as well as day-to-day -day things that are coming up. If, when you have hope and where your hope is placed will determine your healthcare decisions, your employment opportunities, your relationships, making financial commitments, and even how to raise your kids. All these things are approached differently if your hope is firmly in God or if your hope is in something else. If our hope is in God, we say no to things with confidence. 
If it doesn't line up with what we're hoping for, it's quick and easy to say no. But if it's something that fits with what you're hoping and praying for, we can move forward with an enthusiastic yes. There are people in the church who have had opportunities that have come up, something possibly a major medical decision. There are people here who've made big financial or business decisions. And what's been the deciding factor is what they believe God is doing next because that's where their hope is. For Megan and I, we spent years hoping to be in ministry and to lead a church. This hope was strong enough and we trusted the call of God enough to shape our biggest life decisions around the dream of leading a church. Now, we're here now and loving what we get to do, but this hasn't been a straight road for us. For me, I waited 11 years to do this. For 11 years, when I first became a Christian at 19, I just believed very quickly that the Lord had called me to be in church leadership and be in ministry and to preach and teach the Bible. I believe that's what I was called to do. And it took 11 years for me to go from believing this and receiving this call and being confident this is what my life needed to be and to being invited to come on staff full-time at a church. In those 11 years, I probably preached less than 10 times. Nobody wanted me to preach to their youth group. Nobody wanted me to go to the old people's home. Nobody wanted me to do their men's Bible study. And I just waited. And in those 11 years, Megan and I, we made major life decisions around this hope that one day we were going to be in the ministry. And then, out of the blue, we get a text message. Are you guys looking for a job? And as a friend of ours, a guy called, uh, by the name of Bryce, I had a chance to talk with him on the phone this week, coincidentally. But he just shot us a message asking us if we want to go to a small town in Montana. And I could be the youth pastor. Megan would be the worship pastor. And that's where we got started. I worked with the teens, had a great time. Megan built the worship team. It was fantastic. Our oldest son, Elijah, he was diagnosed with autism while we were there. And that prompted us to head back east to New Jersey, where we lived and pastored for four years before moving up to Baldwinsville, where we've been able to serve here for the past few years. Our plan as of right now is to retire as the pastors of Word of Life 20 or 30 years. We love it. But there was 11 years of waiting. There was 11 years of hope. Our lives were shaped around the hope in what God had said, and we believed and we hoped and we trusted that it would come to pass. These big decisions, employment decisions, the opportunities to move state, all of it was driven by this hope that we had, true hope, hope that is deeply held on to, will influence our most important decisions. The third thing I put to you is that hope requires optimism. Hope requires optimism. Hope for the future is not shrunken down to whatever the reality of today is. Hope means believing that tomorrow can be better. Hope is declaring that despite how today might be, tomorrow can be something else. Without this basic belief that it can be better, then we instead believe that this is how it will always be. And we start to build our life with a conclusion that this is how it is, and we don't build towards anything else. A great quote from John Maxwell I read this week is where there is no hope in the future, there is no power in the present. Where there is no hope in the future, there is no power in the present. Another way of phrasing the sentiment is to say that to rise up from whatever is keeping us down, we need the hope and the belief that it won't always be like this. Now, negative people will often defend their negativity as being realistic. They'll say, I'm a realist. Now, a true realist is helpful in an emergency situation. In an emergency, everyone wants the negative person to get out of the room. But a realist will help everyone understand the problem better so we can start getting out of it. 
They don't bring the group down. They help with the solution. But a negative person doesn't see beyond the immediate problem. The pessimistic person cannot imagine or visualize beyond the problem. To be negative or pessimistic, even if we explain it away as being a realist, it keeps us where we are. Being negative keeps us dwelling on the problem or the dilemma or the injustice. Being stuck in that prevents us from seeking God. It prevents us from finding hope in God because if we don't dare to imagine or even conceive that the future could look better than this, that there is an answer to the biggest problem I have, that nothing I'm struggling with is too much for the Lord God Almighty. If we find ourselves stuck in negativity, we will stay stuck because we can't imagine or visualize something else beyond today. I wrote this down and it was helpful for me and perhaps it'll be helpful for you. Being positive doesn't fix everything, but being negative can't fix anything. Being positive doesn't fix everything, but being negative can't fix anything. And I've thought about this a lot this week, and the conclusion I came to is I would rather take my last breath full of hope and belief and optimism and positivity than take my last breath full of doubt and fear and pessimism and negativity. I want to live with confidence in Jesus. I want to live believing his promises. I want to build my life around what God has said. I want my hope to truly be in him and him alone. And that a positive hope and confidence will keep me coming back to him time and time again. That psalm again we read earlier. We put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice for we trust in his holy name. Let your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in you alone. Hope is interwoven with trust. Hope shapes our decisions. And hope requires optimism. That verse from Romans, again, we read a moment earlier. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And getting ready for today, I started asking, what is hope in Jesus? It's one thing to say it, but what does it really mean? And I came up with a few different thoughts around it. The first is, to, what is hope in Jesus? The first thing I said is, hope in the Old Testament promises. Romans 15, 4 for everything that was written in the past, talking about the Old Testament scriptures, was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Paul writes elsewhere to the church in Corinth that in Jesus, all of God's Old Testament promises are answered yes and amen in him. The whole Old Testament points to a savior and we now know that the scriptures point us to Jesus Christ, the son of God. The second thing, what is hope in Jesus? The second thing is hope in the crucifixion. From Romans 4, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. The crucifixion of Jesus is when he took on all the sins of the world and received the punishment that humanity deserved. By sending his son, God became humanity to pay the price humanity could never pay for ourselves. Without the cross, the debt remains unpaid. 
But because Jesus paid the price and took the punishment, all debts were settled and we can live and enjoy the freely given forgiveness of God. And that brings us to the third thing. If one person claps, we all have to. But the third thing this brings us to, what is hope in Jesus? It's also hope in the resurrection. From 1 Peter, praise be to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus, Him coming back to life on that first Easter morning. It means that death and sin is conquered forever. His new life shows us that we can have new life. We can leave the old behind, the old self can die, and we can live in the new life He has promised. His resurrection means we can be born again. And the fourth thing, what is hope in Jesus? It's also hope in the second coming. From 1 Peter again, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His second coming. There's a grace, a gift, something wonderful that believers will receive when Jesus returns. I want to read to you the last verses of the Bible in the very end of the book of Revelation. This is how the Bible concludes. He who testifies to these things says, this is Jesus talking, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. The Bible ends with the promise that he will return. There is a message of Jesus that is an eternal message. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus returned to heaven with a promise that he will return. He will finish what he started. His kingdom will come in its fullness. And for every believer, this is a promise that we should hope for with passion and fervency. Now remember, some things are good instruments that have an important place in our lives, but God and God alone is the conductor, the composer, and the musician. He is the source and the place of our hope. This Christmas, find hope in the right place. Hope is interwoven with trust. The two considerations by trusting God is to consider His motives and His ability. Hope also shapes our decisions. Hope requires optimism. And while being positive doesn't fix everything, being negative can't fix anything. What is hope in Jesus? It means having hope in the Old Testament promises, having hope in the crucifixion, hope in the resurrection, and hope in the second coming. This Christmas, find hope in the right place. I've got a couple of questions for you if you're not in the habit of writing these down. Perhaps this is the first time you do this, but perhaps this will give you something to think about this week. The first thing I put to you is, in what ways do you need more hope? In what ways do you need more hope? What area of your life do you need more hope? Is there a specific weight that you're carrying? Is there a specific burden that's dragging you down? In what ways do you need more hope? And the second question I put to you is, where have you placed your hope? Where have you placed your hope? Is your hope truly in the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Or is your hope somewhere else? Where have you placed your hope? I want you to stand with me before we go back into a time of worship. Psalm 33, verse 20. We put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. Let your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in you alone. From Romans 15, 13. 
I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, if there's anyone here today that is feeling hopeless, that is feeling weighed down by life, may something from this morning spark a renewed hope in their life. May what we just read from Paul, that you are the source of hope. Lord, may the Holy Spirit bring that hope up in our lives. May we be courageous enough to place our hope in you. Lord, may the word hope this Christmas that we see here, there, and everywhere, Lord, can it please be more than just a Christmas buzzword? Can it be a a call for us to place our hope in you? Oh, Lord, minister in the hearts of your people right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, everyone, let's spend some time in worship together. Amen.